And so, so many questions in writing require you to understand the main idea, even in the parts that weren't asked about or underlined for grammatical mistakes. So if you're trying to get an 800, don't be the hero who tries to just jump around to the uh, underlined parts and answer at that point. I don't think you'll do well. I think you're going to miss some pretty vital clues that were given in the context outside the underlined parts. I think that you might not finish complete sentences to realize there was a grammatical error that could have been caught easily if you understood what the sentence said later. So don't rush the writing section. Don't be a hero to try to finish it in 20 minutes. Read the whole passage, understand main ideas, and that should get you a lot of uh, points. From Test Takers, this is the Hashtag Prep Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn more about standardized testing and college admissions so that you can help your students navigate this important time with accurate and insightful information. Hosted by Test Takers Director of Development, Andrew Nadiakara, and Director of Personnel, Jeremy Freed. So prepare to learn the secrets that will help your students gain clarity, reduce stress, and work smarter, not harder. This is the Hashtag Prep Podcast. All right, welcome back to Hashtag Prepped. On this episode, we have directors Jeremy and Brian Corden back in the studio to help everybody with some quick English tips that are important not only for the SAT, but also for life. So while this episode might ostensibly be here for students taking the SATs, I think any listeners and any adults could always use a brush up on some of the important skills, especially in grammar. Uh, I always like to remind my students that these skills aren't just for the SAT, but also for life. You can't make like an I versus me mistake on your college essay, but it's kind of hard to get an 800 on the English. Brian, Jeremy, why do you think that is? Well, I think it's hard because uh, there's a lot to command. You have a lot of grammatical rules. Some of them are, are very commonly appearing, but some of them are a little more obscure. So, you know, students can find themselves, you know, commanding a, a lot of what they need to be really successful. But sometimes I think also, especially that writing scoring table can be really harsh up at the top. So, you know, even one misstep can, you know, drop a, a score down, perhaps a disproportionate amount. Now, as far as reading is concerned, uh, I think sometimes people overthink it a little bit. It really is a straightforward activity if you let it be, and uh, especially for very you know uh, high-scoring students used to really high-level English classes that are more you know read between the lines than just you know the the surface activity that an SAT represents can find themselves out thinking it and depressing their score as a result of that. Yeah, to Jeremy's point, between the English sections, you've got the reading with 52 questions and the writing with 44 questions. So you've got 96 questions. And to get an 800, for the most part, you have to get all 96 of those correct. And I don't care how good you are at English. If I ask you to answer basically 100 questions, the likelihood of you messing one of them up is pretty high. So an 800 is an exceptionally high bar to hit. It's amazing when someone can do it. But it really means you get virtually nothing wrong. The one place you're going to find a little bit of forgiveness is the reading section. Of those 52 questions, it's often the case that you can miss one very, very, very rarely too and still have a perfect 40 for the reading section, which would then be added to a 40 for writing for a perfect 800. But in writing, as Jeremy mentioned, that scoring table can be really harsh not to freak anyone out completely, but in June 2018, one writing question wrong was 50 points off, which means you could have aced the entire math section and the entire reading section, and you would have ended up with a 1550 for one error. 
I do think that was an anomaly. I don't think that that was actually something most students should worry about. But the point remains, writing is perhaps the harshest of the three subjects when it comes to the top of the scoring table. It's, it's unforgiving of errors. So when you put those two things together, you know, that, that's, uh, I think, the, the biggest uh, pair of factors uh, involving, you know, getting that perfect score. But, you know, there are a lot of things that you can do uh, in order to, you know, put that uh, into play. And, you know, as Brian mentioned, that, that really difficult writing scoring table, I think the biggest thing is just uh, attention to detail. I think more, more than any other place, you know, you find that people are missing questions, not because, you know, they're, they're you know, in some way too hard. It's just people aren't reading quite carefully enough, quite closely enough uh, to discern, you know, the, the difference between right and wrong when sorting through reading answers. And often, you know, with uh, stems of writing questions, you know, providing the answer that the, the test is really asking for when it comes to those. All right, so let's get a little bit specific, and let's start with some of the grammar rules, and then we'll pivot to what Jeremy was talking about, some of those ideas, the STEM questions. Jay? I mean, you know, you have your, your common ones, uh, what we call uh, test takers the big three, uh, agreement, uh, concision, punctuation. Those are going to be your most commonly occurring uh, grammatical errors. But uh, for those students who are aspiring to the absolute uh, highest scores, I think the far more relevant uh, piece of our curriculum is, is something we call a grammar grab bag. You know, kind of those odds and ends concepts uh, that are going to make the difference between just a good score and a great score. Uh, Nock, you alluded to one earlier when you talked about, you know, the difference between I and me, uh, something that's called a, a pronoun case error. You know, that's not something that you'll see on absolutely every single test that comes up, but if it comes up, as you mentioned, that, that's something that you do need to know. So, so that's one of those, you know, again, odds and ends uh, questions where, you know, the likelihood that you'll see it, uh, decent, probably about 50-50 that one of those would, would cross your path on a test. So it may be that if you learn about it, you'd, you know, never ultimately see it. Um, it may be that it's the sort of thing that could uh, make the difference between, you know, a, a great score and an elite score. So Testakers is a New York-based company, and one of the things we find a lot with our students is the New York State curriculum for English in high school does not include grammar. Uh, we have in New York these things called the Regents, where students are tested on what they've learned in school, and there is no grammar Regents. So most public high schools in New York State don't teach grammar formally. Obviously, you'll have a really special English teacher who will inject it into the curriculum, which obviously it should be. But what we find is most of our students come in just not knowing Honestly, some of the basics. So if I use the phrase subordinating conjunction or prepositional phrase or object pronoun, I'm going to get a bunch of blank stares from my students and probably from a good lot of my parents too, because they just have no idea what that means. So in terms of sentence construction, the grammar section is so harsh because other states do teach grammar to students. So for certain students across the country, it's not that hard to ace the grammar section because they know grammar. But here in New York, a lot of these kids are like going by their ear, what sounds right to them. And the problem is, it's going to sound right to you when you say, well, if, you know, just keep this between you and I, but blah, 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 blah. Because that's what probably 95% of people are going to say. And if you're listening right now thinking, oh, I didn't hear anything wrong with that, that's exactly the point we're making. Because to say between you and I is exceedingly common, but it's completely grammatically incorrect. Between is a preposition. I is a subject pronoun. You can't follow a preposition with a subject pronoun. Another preposition would be to or for or from. You're not going to say to I, for I, from I. You need an object pronoun after preposition because prepositions take what are called objects. So between should be followed with me. 
not I. And that's the kind of stuff that's very nitty-gritty grammar that we would need to teach students who are trying to score an 800. Because if they're just relying on their ear, they're not going to get that. The other major wild card with these grammar grab bag rules that Jeremy referred to, things like a dangling modifier, a phrase that is at the beginning of a sentence but doesn't have a subject and merely provides description. Coming home from work, built in the 1920s, invented by Thomas Edison, the subject of the sentence needs to be the very next word after the comma. Otherwise, you're running into what's called a dangling modifier. If I said located in Paris, everyone loves the Eiffel Tower. The problem with the sentence is my modifier located in Paris is followed by the subject everyone. But everyone is not located in Paris. The thing that was being described as located in Paris is the Eiffel Tower, which should have been the subject of the sentence. So it should say located in Paris. The Eiffel Tower is a beloved landmark. You're also going to run into idiomatic expressions, which are the wild cards of the writing section. These are what I tell my students are, as I said, the wild card questions, because either you know it or you don't, and there's nothing you can really do to prepare for that other than, you want my honest opinion? Watch more television. Listen to more music. How are you going to know what the correct phrase is in common English? By exposing yourself to educated adults speaking and, and by reading books. So a basic example of an idiom, and I'm not talking about the phrases you might be thinking of, like an apple a day keeps a doctor away or something like that. It's more the prepositions that go with certain verbs. So if I said, I'm depending, what word is definitely coming out of your mouth next? On, right? I'm not depending for you. I'm not depending from you. I'm depending on you. Why? Because that's the phrase in English. So students tend to be very unsatisfied with explanations to idiomatic questions because they say, well, why can't it be from? Because no educated human would ever say, depending from you, like that's the answer. So recognition of common English phrasings is a major part of it, but it's hard to teach it because there are about a billion of them. So that's a bit of a wild card. I was, would definitely agree with that. I was thinking about idiomatic expressions as you were uh, discussing that. And sometimes students will say, uh, well, you know, is there a list of idiomatic expressions I can learn? And you say, yeah, it's called the dictionary. You know, like the, there's, there's just no list that you can learn uh, of these things because they more or less have the English language at their disposal. Uh, and depending on, I think, is a, a more common one. Uh, but then you get into some tough ones like are you indifferent to something, indifferent from something, indifferent with something? You know, you get to some kind of complicated expressions that – uh, again, you know, a, a person who is well-read, a person who is, uh, you know, really like seeking out, you know, more information, more uh, interaction with the with the language is going to be more successful with it. But otherwise, there's not really a, a foolproof way to make sure, make absolutely certain that you can command everything that might come your way. You can do a, a really good job to do it, but there just always remains, you know, the possibility that a expression that you are not familiar with will show up on your test uh, and your success will either, you know, uh, rise or fall depending on it. Yeah, and that comes back to practice, 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 and just to expose yourself to as many of those problems and as many idioms that you can. One specific advice I like to give my students is watch out for the word of. That preposition is there to mess them up. It's the most sus word on the SAT, especially for the verb agreements. Like if they say uh, the use of drugs in the NBA are banned, uh, it's really the use of drugs in the NBA is banned. It's the use is banned. Also, don't do drugs. Um, you know, something that was traditionally a huge no-no on the test, and, and I think they've maybe gotten a little bit better at it, is using the word being. 
it, it for a very long time, you know, and, and Brian's been at this even longer than I have. I, I kind of kept a running tally, like of the number of times I saw it being used correctly because it was like, <gasps> they did it. Oh my God, I think I'm up to four. You know, like it, it was just something that they did not use correctly. Uh, and it was as good a reason as any to just cross out an answer choice. Uh, I still feel that way predominantly, although not in the same kind of, uh, you know, for safe, for safety just cross out an answer choice with being like you, you would be right saying that 99.9% of the time before now, maybe it's like 95% of the time. Yeah. And if there's any confusion over what the being problem was, it would often be using a case uh, verb tense. So there would be a sentence saying Jeremy being a teacher. It's like, well, no, not Jeremy being a teacher. Jeremy is a teacher. So being would be just sort of in the wrong tense there. You would also see it in concision problems. So being that Jeremy is a teacher you just say as a teacher. So that's why being was traditionally such a buzzword for a wrong answer. But they have, I think, as Jeremy mentioned, largely cut back on that. Um, I would say, yeah, Naka's point about the word of is a really good one. Learning freaking punctuation. People want to put commas everywhere like they're freaking sprinkles. People just think that commas go everywhere you need a breath. Stop it. A comma has a job. It's like an addition sign in math. You can't just put a bunch of pluses into a math equation. A comma should be connecting a dependent clause to an independent clause. It should not be in the middle of a sentence for no reason, just because you feel like the sentence was going long. That's not what a comma does. So really understanding that if this comma is not serving the purpose to connect a dependent clause, a a non-sentence fragment, to an independent clause, a full, complete sentence thought, then get rid of it. Just delete it. That's very common in the SD to understand to, de- to, to delete extraneous punctuation. And I'll say about punctuation, you really need to know those rules because punctuation questions kind of distinguish themselves on the test in that often the wording will be entirely the same and all that will change is the punctuation. So if you're looking at a series of answer choices where all the wording is identical, but one has a semicolon, one has a colon, one has a comma, you know, it's not even the sort of thing where sometimes people think, as as someone mentioned, oh, I can hear this, I'll I'll know what the right answer sounds like. like, Well, unless your ear perceives a difference between a comma and a semicolon, uh, I don't think that's going to be the case. You really have to know what you're doing with it. So uh, it it puts the onus on really understanding the rules. Um, I, I like to say that punctuation has purpose, Uh, And I say be very technical about it uh, because you want to look at these and sometimes you'll see Brian mentioned commas. They they put commas everywhere. So you look and say, well, what is this comma actually doing? Oh, it's it's, uh, an introductory clause. Got it. Okay, that comma is serving that purpose. What's this comma doing? You'll you'll see answer choices with three different commas in different places, and you have to look and say, well, should that first comma be there? Should that second comma? Should that third comma? Because the answer choice will be combinations of all of them, and the way that you know that is by really understanding how they're used and then assessing them on a case-to-case basis, not just thinking, did I did I pause when I read that? Did I take a breath? You know, Maybe. I'm not sure. It's like, that doesn't help anything, especially not when you're talking about a perfect score. Yeah, and just to clarify a few punctuation rules just as you're listing those off. Semicolons, they don't go with fragments. That's like basic rule number one. If you're going for an 800, you have to be able to eliminate those answers pretty quickly. Also with colons, they don't just list things. If you're a pro at grammar, you know the biggest rule with colons is that they have to follow a complete thought, a sentence colon, and then it could be a list. It could be a list of one thing or another sentence, as long as it's clarifying it. Bri, you're edging to say something? Well, I was just going to say one kind of other 
writing rule for a student looking at that 800, we've really focused on the grammar here. And to the, for the most part, people think of the writing as a grammar section. Technically, it's less than 50% grammar. Of the 44 questions, only 20 are allotted to test grammatical rules, like the ones Jeremy mentioned, agreement, punctuation, grammar grab back things. The majority of the writing section is actually more of a reading section, to be honest. It's called expression of ideas, and it's testing your ability to synthesize main ideas from a paragraph or connect ideas together with proper wording. So recognizing a contrast between two sentences might require a however, or a support for a previous claim might require an indeed or for example. So that's why I always tell students, read the entire writing passages. When we get to reading, you actually can kind of get around a lot of reading without doing much reading, ironically. But the writing section, first of all, the passages are at a much lower grade level than they are in the reading section, so they're easier to read. And so, so many questions in writing require you to understand the main idea, even in the parts that weren't asked about or underlined for grammatical mistakes. So if you're trying to get an 800, don't be the hero who tries to just jump around to the uh, underlined parts and answer at that point. I don't think you'll do well. I think you're going to miss some pretty vital clues that were given in the context outside the underlined parts. I think that you might not finish complete sentences to realize there was a grammatical error that could have been caught easily if you understood what the sentence said later. So don't rush the writing section. Don't be a hero to try to finish it in 20 minutes. Read the whole passage, understand main ideas, and that should get you a lot of uh, points for those expression ideas questions. Especially when you know you think about uh, the, the amount of time that you have. Uh, you have time to read the whole thing. And the spaces between the underlined portions that sometimes people feel like, oh, I, I could just jump right to that next thing. It's like, did, did you not read two whole sentences because you were so eager to get to the next question? You have the time for that. You know, that provides, as Brian mentioned, valuable context. Uh, it's, it's not so much. They're not asking you to read like two more pages before you get to the next question. They're, they're talking about, you know, maybe two sentences over five lines. Uh, you have the time for it. It's going to help you out. And... You know, when you are answering those idea-based questions, having that information is really helpful to you. Uh, you're not doing yourselves any favor by, by skipping quickly to the next one. All right. So any specific expression of idea questions that you think trips up even our highest scoring students? I think my most specific tips that I give the students is that if the first question that you get on a passage is which best introduces the passage as a whole, Slow down, maybe save that for last. And you have to read those questions carefully because it, sometimes it says which one best introduces the paragraph or the sentence. And just like kind of circling, I'm a big advocate of just underline. Anytime they give you a prompt, underline uh, those key words. But specifically if it's asking for like the passage as a whole, we've seen so many times there's always a plot twist as that comes along. For a lot of those questions, when they're asking about the main idea of the full passage, honestly, if you look at the first sentences of each of the subsequent paragraphs, you're probably going to see an answer that states almost exactly what those sentences say. And if a question asks about a conclusion for the passage, nine times out of ten, the answer will make a reference to something that the first paragraph brought up, by the way. And to go back to what Naka was saying about you know underlining prompts, um, I am all about that. 
you know, when it comes to these stems, we, we mentioned stems before, when we talk about a stem, that means kind of the question within the question. Uh, when it comes to a grammar question, if you're looking at it at, on an SAT, they'll just underline something and give you some options. There, there's no direction beyond that. There's the assumption that you know what to do. Like, here's this thing. It's either right the way that it is, and therefore, you know, you can pick an answer that's no change, answer choice A, or you can change it to one of B, C, or D. Uh, but there are no directions beyond that. There's no question that's like, you know, is the grammar on this correct? It's just underline, go and pick the answer. But then the idea-based questions will have the question within the question. You know, the author is trying to do this, or you know, the author is considering adding uh, this sentence at this point. Should the author do this? So when you have those stems, I think the temptation can sometimes be for students to feel like, well, this is such an annoyance, or this is so much more work. Grammar questions are easier because all I have to do is just fix the grammatical problem, and then I get to move on. Here, I have to read this like whole paragraph. Uh, and I say to the students, it's like, well, don't, don't think of it as a nuisance uh, or you know, something that's you know, problematic or time-consuming. What they're really doing is giving you really detailed instructions on how to find the right answer because they're asking for a very particular thing. If you give them that particular thing, you got it right. So to feel like this is somehow problematic to me or an inconvenience, I think is really the wrong attitude for it. Uh, so if you just resolve to say, okay, Here's this stem. What do I think is the key word or phrase in here that I'm really trying to look for when I look at these answer choices? And you'll find those questions move very, very quickly, and you're going to have a really uh, high rate of success. All right, so let's quickly talk about the reading section, probably the, the quote-unquote hardest for students, most challenging. No one at Test Takers or here at Hashtag Prep would ever say that uh, – Reading is hard. It's, you know, it's boring. It's a little bit of a, it's a marathon there. And it's the first section. So it is the section where you do need to focus the most and that will actually affect your score. If you go in there a little bit tired, that will easily reflect in your uh, reading score. Uh, any tips for the reading section, Bri? I'd love to tease kids about the reading section. The reading section is ironically the only part of the SAT that requires not so much reading. <laughs> like, you don't have to do it the reading the entire freaking passage to get these questions right. What students have absolutely no understanding about with the SAT reading section is it is not an interpretation test. There is no inference. There is no judgment. Do not draw your own conclusions. Stop overthinking this test. And if your problem is focused, sometimes I just have to throw a little cold water on your face and be like, listen, if your problem is focused, then this test is assessing you exactly as it's supposed to be assessing you. Because it is a focus section. And if you're bad at focus, guess what? I don't know if 800 is the goal for you. Because this is a focus section, and colleges need to know, how are you at paying attention to details? That's an important life skill. And if you come into this test being like, I'm really bad at that. Can I have an 800, please? It's like, no, you can't. I can't go into a German test and be like, can I get a perfect score on this test even though I don't speak German? No, that's not how tests work. So put your big kid pants on, focus. It's the reading section. Find the answers in the passage. This thing is a glorified scavenger hunt. Every single question on the reading section, with the exception of word and context questions, which really require you to just understand the connotation of a word. If I say, what does appreciate mean in line 17? Well, it depends on how I'm using appreciate. Am I saying I appreciate the gift or am I saying the value of the car appreciated over time? So you just need to know how to, words might have different meanings in different contexts. Let's forget word and context questions for a section. Section, second. Every other freaking question on the reading section is nothing more than a scavenger hunt. If you had a computer, I would just be like, control F for that keyword in the question. Where did the passage talk about it? That's where the answer is. 
There is no interpretation. There is no overthinking. Stop it. No one cares what you thought it meant because this is a test of your ability to know the difference between fact and feeling. So when I tell you I didn't see Jeremy at the party, are you now incorrectly inferring that he wasn't there? Because you don't have that fact. All I said was I didn't see him at the party. But if now you think that means Jeremy wasn't at the party, you're not good at logic because no, I didn't say he wasn't at the party. Don't twist my words. Don't draw conclusions when you don't have that fact. So the only thing you know is that Brian didn't see Jeremy at the party. That's the fact you have. So the SAT is testing the very important life skill of, do you know the difference between what was told to you and what you thought that that probably meant, which is not the way you need to be working your life. And I'll say as well, you know, you mentioned what the, the math and the writing, you know, do that the reading don't. I mean, the, the reading, uh, other than having a vocabulary, actively is disinterested in outside knowledge. And that's not true for the rest of the test. You know, when it comes to writing, like we, we obviously just talked about a bunch of grammatical rules. Like you have to understand that rule. If you don't know that rule, you're not going to be successful for the math. Like there is math knowledge that you need. If you don't know that, like you're not going to be successful. And there are ways to work around certain things, sure, okay, but, but you're just not going to be successful if you don't know certain rules. With reading, it discourages outside knowledge. If you, you know, get a passage and you're like, oh my goodness, a, a passage on, you know, astronomy, like I'm an amateur astronomer. I love to get my telescope out in the backyard and like, doesn't matter. Okay, that, that doesn't impact anything. If anything, you know, that, that might be a negative. If you're looking at this like, well, I know better than this passage. It's like, that's not the question. That's not the assignment. The test is asking questions and you're finding answers in the passage, which is PS where all the answers are located uh, and you just have to go and get them. Uh, so it, it's something that uh, the more that you bring to it, the, the worse you do. Uh, you simply want to say, okay, uh, I know that words have meaning. If I put pressure on words to mean what they mean, then I will find that there is one answer choice uh, that is correct and three that are wrong. And it's not a negotiation. It's not a discussion. It's just the reality of it. And I always, you know, say to students on that scavenger hunt, you know, standpoint, you know, the ease of this section said, if you said uh, that you went into your English class, you know, on a Monday and your teacher said, we got a test on Friday. You're like, oh man, test on Friday. Bummer. It's like, yeah, it's, uh, you know, on uh, the catcher in the rye. You know, aside from the fact that, you know, unfortunately you're reading The Catcher in the Rye. But uh, it's on The Catcher in the Rye and you're like, okay, The Catcher in the Rye, got it. You know, that whole book we just read. It's like, oh, no, 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 not the whole book, just page 100. Oh, okay. It's like, and, and you get to look at it while you take the test. Like, I'm sorry, what? A test that's on just like one page of this one book and I get to look at it to like find the answers? Why is this even hard? You would think it was a walk in the park and the reality of it is that it is, okay? If you know what it is and approach it in the right way, then that is what it is. You read something, they ask you questions on the thing you just read, you know, if you take the time to read it at all, and if you don't remember or you need to look back, it's right in front of you. Like, this is as easy as can be if you want it to be. All right, so to end this episode, uh, Brian, do you want to give us our hashtag prep pro tip? If you're going to get a really hard, dense passage, stop freaking out about it. You're going to see a passage that's from the 1800s. Don't worry about it. It's going to be there. It's designed to intimidate you. You're not the one kid in the country who doesn't understand this passage. Nobody will, but that's the point. So what you need to do is look at topic sentences, which are often the first sentences of paragraphs, 
And then get to your questions and start looking for keywords that the questions ask about or line references of the passage that the questions refer to. So don't try to slog your way through a really difficult passage. It's not going to work for you. You're just going to reread the same line 18 times, think about how much you hate this, get really bored, cycle into depression, and then nothing works from that. So just look at topic sentences and then focus on keywords or easy sentences in the passage because that answers most of the questions. All right, sitting across from me is Jeremy Freed. We have Brian Corden. My name is Naka. If you're taking the SAT tomorrow, good luck, or anytime soon, good luck. And don't hesitate to reach out to us. You can reach out to us at preppodcast.com. And this has been 